With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening from Coolidge, Arizona. It's March the 21st, 2019. We are continuing in our study in the Old Testament book of Daniel, uh, the history and prophecy found within. This is uh, episode number 40. So we have had 40 episodes uh, through this book up to this point. Um, We will still have one more session in chapter 11 before we can enter into the final chapter, chapter 12, which is a short chapter in, in, in light of the way chapters normally are, but it's, um, it's still going to take us some time to get through it because of all of the uh, going back and forth with the text uh, and the comparing it to other verses we find in the New Testament. So we'll be at that sometime yet. Can't exhaust it. No. Um, <clears throat> you know, chapter 12 is rather a conclusion uh, summary, but it's going to mention many of the things that we've been doing here for weeks. So in our text today, we're going to be looking at chapter 11, verse 32, and we'll go on from there as far as we can go, (coughs) probably down through to nearly verse 40, although we may be uh, not going that far. The prophecy (coughs) is continuing for Daniel's understanding. It just keeps going verse after verse. The angel is speaking, and and Daniel is listening and learning. And he's listening and learning very closely because these world events that are being described really affect his people, the Jews, and he understands this. The time frame for this event, and I like to keep coming back so we know where we're at in time. Uh, not the time that this prophecy was given to Daniel, because that's many years before where he's what he's hearing about just now. So during this prophecy, during this account, the narrative, if you will, um, that is being described in verse 32 is in our yearly renderings, we would call it 168 B.C. Now, as the writings in the Maccabees, as we have talked about over and over again, which are part of the apocryphal uh, books of the Old Testament, but the Maccabees being quite good historically, uh, within those uh, four uh, writings of the Maccabees, they record yearly dates uh, where, where, and where they start their, their uh, rendering of years is from what they call the year of the Greeks. And, and of course, we wouldn't be doing such a thing as that. But remember, they had no knowledge of uh, B.C. and A.D. and all of these other things. So they were recording things in a proper manner Uh, for the Maccabees at that time because this was the era that they lived in. Thus, they started counting from when Israel is conquered by Ptolemy I, Soter. Uh, Now remember, he's one of the four generals who took a portion of Alexander the Great's kingdom right after he died. Just a couple of years later, they were all established in their own areas of the known world. Ptolemy Soter uh, was, had taken the, uh, the area of Egypt. 
He invaded Israel in uh, in year zero, as far as the Maccabees are counting, and he exiled 120,000 Jews to Egypt. That's a lot of people. Now, our date for this occurrence uh, that we find in, in, in history is 312 B.C. And remember, about 3... Uh, 320 is when uh, the uh, is when the four generals were consolidating their power. So this is shortly after that, about eight years, and that's their zero date. That's where they start counting from when that transgression against Israel, because remember the Maccabees are interested in Israel and Israel only. Uh, that's their their account because they're Jews. So, uh, now stay with me here, uh, because this formula, this, this idea of 312 B.C. being zero for the Maccabees is something that you need to remember, because you'll be able to understand all of the dating in the Maccabees from that point. So, verse 32 in Daniel 11 is speaking of the time of the birth of the Maccabean revolt, as it's called. And that revolt was against the king of the north, Antiochus IV, who we've been talking about these many weeks. This happened in Israel in 168 B.C., or as the Maccabees record, the 145th year of the Greeks. So, let's go to the text in Daniel 11.32, Daniel 11.32, and see what it says. Remember, I'm reading from the Septuagint and not the English Bibles and the uh, translation. So sometimes we're going to hear different words and uh, lengthier verses or shorter verses, or whatever the case may be. And the transgressor shall bring about a covenant by deceitful ways. But a people knowing their God shall prevail and do valiantly. All right, now let's talk about this a little bit. You see, this is a, um, a turn of events, if you will. The transgressors uh, is talking about, of course, uh, um, the whenever we see covenant, we know we're talking about Jews, deceitful ways. Um, unfortunately, the Jews were their own worst enemy during these times, because some of them were they were changing sides, uh, trying to save themselves, but they were out of step with God's ways. I read the Maccabees, that first one, and it was easy to understand, and it was very helpful. It was exactly like you said. They were detailed, and the Jews were being just as bad. And to try to save their life, they became what they were calling themselves Gentiles. Yes. Um, and they were just as bad as... They were living the lifestyle yeah. of a Gentile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many, some of them. Yeah. It was very helpful to read it. But here, we're, we're talking about... Um, a people knowing their God shall prevail. Okay, that people knowing their God is, of course, would be Jews, Jews. that were righteous, Jews that were not giving in to the pressures of the Greek um, uh, culture that was being imposed upon Israel as, as from this point on. It was very violent. And it was very, it was very uh, difficult. Now, as Daniel heard this prophecy about the people who know their God, as the angel said, Daniel did not know by name the leaders of the godly revolt, but we do. Uh, he had no reason to know the name. He only knew that something was going to happen here. Uh, he could see both sides of it in just that one verse. Now, let me uh, share with you a little something that 
has been uh, written, uh, and I got it from Jesse Mills' survey concerning the uh, the people that were responsible for standing up against Antiochus. Um, the man was uh, uh, Matthias, who was the Maccabean, as he's known. And he was a modest, God-fearing man. Uh, he was a priest, so he was from the tribe of Levi. He came to be known by the title of Maccabeans, and he lived in a small town only five miles from Jerusalem. Now, during this period of the, uh, the oppression of the northern kingdom upon Israel, certain officers of Antiochus came traversing the countryside, and they were trying to enforce the edict on all of the Jews to sacrifice, that is, animals, to the pagan gods. Now the officers called upon Matthias, uh, who was the leader of, of, the, of the community, being the priest, and because he was a man of influence and they wanted him to set the example of obedience for the others to follow. Well, they probably asked the wrong person to do that. He had no intention of doing that. Matthias was ready for death, uh, opposing Antiochus, but he was not going to die as an apostate. But just as he was about to, to uh, respond, an apostate Jew. Now, apostate means you've drawn away from the covenant that you are under. That's what apostasy is. Uh, you can't be an, an, an apostate if you uh, a Christian apostate, unless you were a Christian once, <laughs> to to become apostate, you had to have been a Christian or you had to have been a Jew. That's when you're apostate. Uh, that that word is bandied around way way more than it should be. You called it, I think, backslider last week. Uh, well, it could be a backslider. Oh. Same kind of the same. Uh, okay. That's a modern phrase for it. But an apostate Jew stepped forward. And he was anxious for favor to be the first to sacrifice to a pagan god. And as the history goes, as it's recorded by the Maccabees, with a single blow, Matthias laid the apostate dead, uh, which was probably quite a shock. So, and that's in 1 Maccabees, uh, chapter 2. So the die was cast. Matthias had five sons. And they gathered around the villagers uh, to respond uh, to what Matthias had done. And the guards were put to flight. In other words, they were run off because they were, they were, of course, in the minority there. And the war for God, country, and creed had begun under the Maccabeans. Now, Matthias had five sons. <clears throat> and I'll list them in this order. It doesn't, the order isn't really necessary for anything. It doesn't mean anything um, because uh, things occur with each one of these sons. But uh, son one was John, surnamed Gadia. He was also called Holy. Remember, these are all Levite men. Simon, surnamed Tashia called the guide, Judas, surnamed Maccabeus, also called the guide, Eleazar, surnamed Arvran, the beast sticker, and Jonathan, surnamed Aphes, who was also known as the cunning. Now these sons, unlike many sons that we have recorded in different texts, these sons were loyal to each other. They were free from selfish ambition, and they were singular, to use an English word, in devotion to the cause. Each came to the front of his, uh, at, at his, in his own time uh, when it was necessary for him to come forth. 
One by one, they each came to the front, but not in the order of age. And Maccabeus Matthias soon became old. He was probably already an older man when this all started. But he became quite old and, uh, under the, uh, and was sinking under the hardship of uh, years. But he was faithful to his end. And he recommended on his deathbed that Judas... Uh, one of his sons, would assume the supreme command of the forces that they had been putting together and that they would go against Antiochus IV. So, so Judas was, in his, in his acts, like a lion. He was also known as Judas the Hammer in other uh, records. And like a lion, whelp roaring for his prey. And that's also in 1 Maccabees 3. He received unto him such as were ready to perish. And you know what that means. His, the people that came to him to fight knew that they would probably die. But they did anyway. So there were many Jews that had scattered into the hills because of the oppression of uh, Antiochus. And they came together in an army. They were fugitives, but now they were joined together under the, the headship of the Maccabean family. They, he, they formed an infantry whose steady discipline, uh, inspired by, of course, their religion, inspired by the covenant they had uh, with God. That's what kept them together, and that's what gave them their drive. Uh, was unbroken amongst them. They were out, uh, outnumbered 10 to 1, typically in any, uh, any battle. But these men, being and doing the things that uh, God required, trying to restore back the godliness to Israel, had the providence of God behind them. But it, it appeared that they received a little help, but not, not, not a lot of help, if you know what I, what I mean. Um, I, uh, I think that we need to, um, if we can imagine such a thing, um, this is, uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, things such as the Revolutionary War in America and, and other uh, revolutionary type uh, scrimmages that are trying to free the people from oppression of one kind or another. All over the world we see things such as this. And that's the sort of encounter that we have here. Um, but it's little spoke of um, within the Christian churches or uh, Christendom in general. It's little spoke of uh, because it, it's, it's known to be part of the Maccabean uh, books and history. But, you know, when you call, uh, when you call books the Apocrypha, it puts a rather a bit of a uh, um, it puts a bit of a, a spin on it because it means well it doesn't mean spurious but uh, it means it's not an inspired writing and it's not it never was considered so but it was considered uh, as Jewish history recorded by Jewish people and it was used in, in the times of Jesus. These things were, were understood at, at that time. Now, in verse 33, we're going to have to go one verse at a time typically here to grasp the, the meaning of it. And it begins with this, and the intelligent of the people. Um, now that, of course, really means in our language probably, and those of the people that had understanding. Uh, if you can kind of fit that in understanding of what of of God's of God's word of of God's covenant, okay. So, and the intelligent of the people shall understand much, yet they shall fall by the sword, by flame, and by captivity and by spoil of many days. And that's verse thirty-three. 
So those that were understanding, those that had an understanding, probably referring here, uh, because we already know about these, these, these folks in a general way even before this, uh, there was a, a Jewish re- religious order that, ha- that had been forming for some years um, known as the Hasidim. And they were simply those that stood on the law, stood on the scriptures, and were indeed uh, trying to restore back to the people, back to the Jews, the things that they should be doing and practicing. Uh, And this group was probably made up of a lot of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had been with the uh, Jews uh, probably starting in the time of the captivity in Babylon. Uh, And the Pharisees were also teachers of the law. But they were devoted to God. They were devoted to the covenant that they had with God. And they took it very seriously. So they, as history accounts, joined forces with the Maccabeans to restore Israel back to the order that God had established that they should live in it. And also they were valiant fighters. Uh, They weren't simply teachers. They were fighting, but they were working together with the group. They were spending a lot of time in talking about God's word and uh, and peering into to history makes one wonder, doesn't it, if they were reading the very scriptures that we're going over now and saying, I wonder if this could be right now. I think there's a good possibility uh, of that. Um, they didn't have any of these dates or anything like that, but if they would follow the narrative as we're doing, I think they would have had some understanding of this. I just think that that's an interesting thing. It's purely my opinion and speculation on my part, uh, but it seems uh, it seems logical in a way. Now they, that is the Hasidim, taught the people God's word. Not only that, but they set that set the example of piety and resistance towards the Seleucid kingdom of Antiochus the Fourth. Now, this is what we need in every generation. Not only teachers of the truth, but we need examples of those uh, very things being worked out in day-to-day life. If we don't have both, we'll soon have either. Uh, That's just the way it is with people. And we we need that. And that's why they were doing this. But the war was on. It was definitely on. There was a real resistance now by the Jews. But, according to history, they would suffer much to bring about that order that they were seeking. For some of their opposition was coming from their own people, from the Jews, who had uh, departed the covenant. They were apostates. And they had departed the covenant for a lot of reasons, mostly being cowards or wanting to have a peaceful life or a, uh, a life that looked very attractive under the, uh, under the lifestyle of the Greeks. And there's many things recorded by, in the Maccabees about some of the things that occurred in that. And they, they tried to bring that Greek lifestyle into... Jerusalem and and the cities around with all of their different uh, issues. It was very graphic. It's very very graphic, yes. It was. Um, They were were nearly, uh, we would call it, in, in the English, we could call them libertines almost. There was just no boundaries. Um, and of course, <laughs> Those boundaries were definitely in place within the Jewish society, and they were, they were there for good reason. Now, the last part of this verse says, yet, yet, you see, even though all of this good is, is going on, 
even though the effort was, was valiant, the effort was godly, the effort was serious, yet they shall fall. Not all of them, but many of them. By the, by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by spoil. I wonder if they've covered everything there. I mean, we, we can certainly see how that expands. And then it says many days. Um, that's not giving any conclusion or any ending. It just says many days. This went on for a while, okay? The struggle was real, I guess I would have to say. Worn out, worn out. And, and it was. I'm sure it was very wearing for many of them. Now, we're at verse 34 and 35. I'd like to read them together. And I do this to try to keep the, keep the uh, items that are relevant together. And then we can speak of, on them according to the historical nature. In verse 34, and when they are weak, that is the Jews, they shall be helped with a little help. But many shall attach themselves to them with treachery. And by the way, that's not helpful. That's the other side of help. Verse 35, And some of them that understand shall fall, to try them as with fire, and to test them, and that they may be manifest at the time of the end. For the matter is yet for a set time. Okay, let's look at this. Uh, let's look at some facts here uh, concerning uh, Antiochus and the and the and the efforts going on here in this time period. From this time period on for about 20 years. Some facts, I guess. The whole period that Antiochus IV troubled Israel was just over six years. Seems like a lot more, doesn't it? But as far as he's concerned, that's the time period for him. Six years, uh, 169 to 163 B.C. Remember, the, the numbers get smaller as we go forward in, in our understanding. 169 to 163 B.C. Now, Judas... Maccabeus, who was the son that took over for his father, uh, just a, about two years, short of two years of when it started, had the leadership of the revolt from 166 B.C., so right in the middle there of the uh, time of Antiochus, to 161 B.C. And let's, let's continue on. Uh, at, at his end, when he, when he was gone, died, his brother Jonathan, Appius, as he was known, he begins to lead then in 160 to 144 B.C. He also became high priest uh, during the, this time. Uh, he became high priest in 150 B.C. Remember the high priest in, in this time frame within the Jews was the leader of the people because it was a, a theocracy. Uh, it was, the rule was a religious rule. It did, they, the, the ideas of kings and all of that had come and gone in Israel. It, it did not work. So now we were back to the... Uh, the uh, theological leadership, theocracy. And then, at the end of his time, in 143 B.C., Simon, his brother, who was also called the guide, took leadership of the Judean revolt, the Maccabean revolt, until about 135 B.C., now, under Simon of the Maccabean Israel, he gained um, its, uh, or he gained, or Israel gained 
their independence in 143 B.C., right at the time of uh, when he took it over. It happened because <coughs> Simon of the Maccabeans had developed a friendship with the Seleucid king, the grandson, actually, of Antiochus, who was known as Demetrius II. They had a friendship. They had an ending of uh, the uh, bondage, if you will. And he also had support from Rome. And support from Rome means that the Romans said, leave him alone, basically, uh, because they were, they were the empire that was growing. They were the empire that was becoming stronger. They were the empire that the Seleucid kings were paying and still were paying tribute to because of the last time that they had a war. So the, these things uh, occurred, and Israel had some measure of independence in 143 B.C. Uh, also, uh, Simon was made uh, and became high priest in 143 B.C. also. Is that the time, time frame in which the Hebrew was translated into uh, uh, the Greek? No, this was much, much later. Much later, uh, that occurred way back in the time of Ptolemy. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, quite some time before this. Now, what I've just been saying here about these Maccabeans takes us 20 years beyond where we're at here in the scripture. Yeah. Uh, so I want to kind of rein us back in a little bit. It takes us 20 years beyond. Uh, but I just wanted to show you the progression of the revolt against the Greeks or the northern kingdom. Remember, all these kingdoms were, were Greeks. <laughs> all four of them were. Um, that was their origin, but, but they became their own type of people as the years went by. And we see that the Maccabees had some measure of success. Uh, I'm sure with the providence of God, as it says, a little help. So let's return back to the text. We're going to be in, in verse 36. Verse 36, which is a rather pivotal verse because it brings us to the point about uh, the issue of the, the, the king. And there's, always, there's been some debate about who this king is. And from my studies and, from, and many of the scholars feel that this king mentioned here is the same king as Antiochus IV. Um, and um, there's other thoughts that it could be somebody else, but it really isn't uh, because of all the things that we find within these, these verses that we'll be coming to and going through. So, in verse 36, and he, that is the king of the north, shall do according to his will. And the king shall exalt and magnify himself against every god, that is, against every pagan god and any god as far as he's concerned, and shall speak great swelling words, and shall prosper until the indignation shall be accomplished, for it is coming to an end. All right, and there's some different translations there according to the uh, Alexandrian uh, text, uh, basically meaning the same thing. Uh, and, and there's some controversy about what end we're talking about here. Well, obviously, there's the end to the reign of this king, but it certainly is not talking about the end of the Jews at this point. The, the subject has not changed that's right. since, you know, for the last dozen verses or so. And, and that's what happens. About the same guy. That's why there's controversy about who the king is here, because people want to move on. They want to go, go ahead, and we have to, we have to keep it where, where it belongs. So the king is Antiochus IV, the same one, the madman as he's known, 
He may be the madman, but he was clever indeed. But even in the midst of all of his trials, and he had many trials on on the political front, if you will, uh, he had much pressure from Rome. Remember, every year there, there there was tribute that had to be paid to Rome. Every year he had to send 12 uh, hostages to Rome to guarantee that the tribute would be paid. And uh, some of those had to be be family members of his. Uh, That's a lot of pressure. And yes, the revolt that was being uh, uh, headed by the Maccabees, Judas Maccabees, who was known as the Hammer in these days, None of these things seem to slow down the ambition of the king, Antiochus, towards the rule of the whole world. That was his goal. Not just the rule, but he also wanted the divine rule, if you will. That was his understanding, the divine rule. Now you can see how the Jews and the whole religion of the Jews really... It did not fit with his divine rule concept. Um, and not only that, the history of the Jews that he knew is, as well as, as we do today. He knew what had happened within the Jews, and he understood that there was power there. But he didn't get slowed down much. But we see here that the, the hand of God was there with a kind of a two-pronged front. Remember, Antiochus here is being used by God the same way God used uh, the Romans in destruction of, of Jerusalem in 70 through 74 AD, the same way that he used Nebuchadnezzar to punish the Jews. Here we find Antiochus being used to punish the Jews You see, none of this would have happened if they would have remained in their covenant. That was God's promise. If you you follow my law, if you remain in the covenant, you will have safety, you will have harvest, you will have rain when you need it. And and these things were known, but they kept drifting. So there was a two-pronged front going here, and it was at the hand of God. But it was a real struggle in Israel. And God was using Antiochus to, to, to punish those that had broken the covenant with him. And we see, if you read the historical accounts of this, when he came into the city, and he did many times, he killed everyone that he could. And the ones he didn't kill, he sold into slavery. Uh, there was just... And so we have a lot of innocent people here. We have a lot of people that thought they were on his side but but didn't survive anyway. So this was happening to the Jews because of their disobedience. But um, God was also, in, in another way, using the outrage of what Antiochus was doing within Israel, how he defamed the temple and how he caused the sacrifices of other animals on temples and he built his own altars and all of these horrible things that he did. He used this outrage to motivate the faithful Jews to embolden them, if you will, towards Antiochus. Thus, strengthening the righteous Jews through the work and teaching of the Pharisees uh, the example of the Pharisees, of the piety, through the, the Maccabean soldiers and those that were uh, fighting against Antiochus and his generals. And it, it leads me to the conclusion that God's purpose will be accomplished. It always is. But sometimes we need to look a little closer to see what's going on and why is it going on. Well, even in the, within the Maccabees, they admit to the fact that they 
Israel was drifting away and Israel was causing much of their own problem. But the end of the covenant time that we here mentioned, the end of the covenant time, and that would be the covenant with God and Israel, was still an appointed time in the future. Even in the future of Antiochus, long beyond Antiochus the fourth, but under the rule of the fourth beast. Do you remember the fourth beast of uh, Daniel chapter seven? The fourth beast, the great and uh, dreadful beast of uh, Daniel seven. Daniel seven. 7 and 8. Daniel 7, 7 and 8. What does it say? Yes, and and after this, Daniel says, I saw in night vision and beheld a fourth beast, terrible and powerful. See, he'd seen three others. And strong exceedingly. And it, hap- and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped the residue with its feet and it was diver, uh, uh, diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn. Now see, at this particular time, this is long beyond where we're at in Daniel. A little horn, before which the first three horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This is not referring to Antiochus in any way. It's referring to something that happens. But you see, the fourth beast has a beginning. It also has an ending. Uh, but it's certainly, uh, it's, it's, a, it's very, uh, Daniel is aware of the fourth beast. He's aware of the time frame. It's also concerning the statue of Daniel 2. Remember the statue of Daniel 2? Now, in Daniel 7, it's, it's the words of Daniel describing the four different kingdoms, the four Gentile kingdoms, remember? Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, Alexander, and the, Ro- and the Romans. You see, the, those are the Gentile kingdoms we're talking of here. But in Daniel 2... <coughs> Um, is the record of Nebuchadnezzar. See, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he saw a large statue. It had a head of gold and a breast of silver, a torso of brass, and the legs and feet of iron and clay. You see, the Romans are the legs and feet. But all of this statue is broken into bits by the kingdom that God cuts from a, from a mountain without the, the, the work of man's hands in the time of the fourth kingdom and destroys all of the others. And of course, that's figurative terminology, um, but it, in, it indeed is true. What's it say here? Uh, In verse 33, it says, its legs of iron and its feet part of iron and part of clay. That's the fourth kingdom. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. By the way, the iron and clay, the strength of the Roman Empire, but you see within that Roman Empire there was clay. In other words... There was weakness. There was weakness. It could not stand against the kingdom of Christ. It could not stand against the church and the faith in Christ and the the new covenant in Christ in the eternal kingdom without end. It could not stand against that. No, No kingdom can. We're living in that kingdom now. That's right. Just like where we're at in Acts on Sunday morning, the freedom... That is something that, that a, a, a civil government, that's not a freedom they can take away, even in chains and shackles. That's right. That's right. Because 
a kingdom that's in your in your heart and in your mind. It, it's, it's a spiritual kingdom, uh, but it certainly destroys the, the the kingdoms of men, which are temporal anyway. They would wear away in time alone. So I wanted to bring that up because that, that's where we're at. Now we go back to Daniel 11, verse 37 through 39. I want to read it and make a comment. And this is probably where we'll be starting or we might uh, start in verse 39 next time we meet. But in 37 and 38, 37 through 39, listen to the words. And he shall not regard any gods. This is speaking of Antiochus. He shall not regard any gods of his fathers, nor the desire of women, that is the, wor- the worship of, of the female gods. Uh, yes. He's got a single focus. Single focus. Neither shall he regard any deity, for he shall magnify himself above all. Well, that's pretty obvious. And he shall honor the God of forces on his place. That is, you see, he is honoring his own kingdom, his own throne. And a God whom his fathers knew not not at all shall honor, he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and desirable things. And he shall do thus in the strong places of refuge. With a strange God, he shall increase its glory, and he shall subject many to them, and shall distribute the lands in gifts. By the way, that last thing, uh, that's something that this king did that other kings never did. They didn't share the plunder with anyone else. Uh, This king did, but he did it for his own benefit, of course. Now, just a comment about this, because we're running out of time this evening. I want you to think about this as, as we go on, or think about this when it, concerning Antiochus, when you hear these words about, about him. And by the way, these things that are listed here, uh, only he did. These things are things that are attributed to him in history. But anyone... I think, who pretends that the war that Antiochus forced upon Israel was purely a secular war or a secular struggle, I think would be very wrong. It wasn't just that. These were covenant people. These were covenant people, and the covenant, he detested the covenant, he detested everything about the covenant, and he detested the God of the covenant. His drive was one of promoting the God of his choosing. Now, with him being the God. (laughs) It it could be himself. Uh, However he got up in the morning and felt like, I guess, whether it was himself or his throne, as it's, it's, uh, uh, that's kind of the rendering in the Greek, but it means his kingdom. And just imagine... He was still holding his kingdom up as the kingdom in all the world when actually the Roman kingdom was more powerful than him even then. And that, that's, that's very interesting, but that gives you the idea of his thinking. Or later, the Roman God. You see, towards the end of his life, he, he adopted the Roman God because it was the stylish God of the time. Uh, and that was Jupiter. And Jupiter had many, uh, many other associates in the, in the religion of the Romans, which was pagan uh, in every way. But the overriding thing here to consider is his hatred of the Jews um, and their religion. I, I think of it as kind of like a burning coal in his in his breast, you know. It just never went away. How could he extinguish it so it would go away and he could stop thinking about it and stop worrying about it? Because this man knew the history of people that had came against the Jews. The history was the history of um, defeat and um, 
and judgment. All right? So think about that when we think about the king. Uh, and we, this is pretty much all we really need to say about that. Uh, there's so much more wrote about him. But he, it seems like he wanted them gone, and he was trying to use their, yeah. you know, their own beliefs against them by forcing them to do, forcing it upon them, so that yeah. they destroy themselves in doing it. He, yeah. He he really looks sounds seems to me like he really wanted them taken taken out. Yeah. And how did he do it? By trying first off to change their culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we can see similar things happening through history everywhere. He was weakening them, weakening them by changing their culture, by giving them things from him that would draw them to him. They would break the covenant they had with God. This was a real testing for Israel, wasn't it? And some of them weren't doing well. But all during this time, we see the strength of the Maccabees, strength of the Pharisees, the strength of the Hasidim, the teachers of Israel. The overcomers. Returning. That's right. The overcomers, the returning to the covenant. That was the, the goal. And it's the goal of God's people in every every time period. And with that, we'll leave you until next time we meet. Let us pray. We thank you, Father, for the complexity of your word, the great truth we find there. And Father, through it, you reason with us and bring us to account that we will not depart the covenant that we are under and that we will continue, Father, in the things that are pleasing to you. And we pray it all this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.